chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Ezra, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. When the seventh moon, when the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then rose Josiah, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and they offered daily burnt offerings by the number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, and after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feast of the Lord, and of the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. morning church well this morning our narrative the one that we have been really hearing about for the past five or six weeks this narrative of God's chosen people the covenant people not being faithful to the covenant to God and uh, impending doom and then ultimately finding themselves in exile uh, it seems to be a reoccurring theme that we've been hearing for quite some time this morning our narrative changes a little bit so it's kind of exciting. We're going to learn something new about the nation of uh, Judah specifically and Israel in general. So Babylon, the nation that had come in and ransacked the nation of Judah and then specifically Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, uh, carried off the exiles, starting with Daniel and his group. Then you had uh, Ezekiel and his group and then another group finally. Uh, Babylon is no longer in power anymore in the world. In fact, the Persians have now come and taken over uh, the rule of Babylon. And King Darius, who is the king of uh, the Persians, has his heart sort of warmed towards these Jewish people, these exiles. They lived sort of in a, in a camp setting together in Babylon. It's not like they uh, dispersed into all the world, into all the, the cities. They, they sort of hovered together. They hung together. They stayed close together. And his heart began to warm towards them, and so he allows them to return back to Jerusalem. In fact, he makes provision for them to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their cities, to rebuild their homes. He wants them to rebuild their lives back there together. And so he makes provision for them, he writes decrees. In fact, he provides a grant for them to be able to begin this process of rebuilding. And so the return from Babylon, that area, back to Jerusalem, was full of so much joy in God's people. But you know, as you read through the text of their return, it wasn't just a, a, a moment of joy. It also was a moment of frustration. You see, these people were released from their bondage. They were released from their captivity. But they weren't coming home to fully furnished and fully functioning cities and houses and temple. They didn't have that. 
They were set free. They were returning home. But the home that they were coming to required a lot of work. Their cities were destroyed. Their homes were ransacked. Their temple was completely gone. Their way of life wasn't just picking up as they just left off some 50 or 60 years before. In fact, what stood in front of them was an incredible amount of work that goes beyond just being released from their captivity. And so rejoicing and celebration filled the city, but there was an overwhelming awareness that the things that, that things were not as though they were supposed to be. And so this is kind of the angle that we're going to take our lesson this morning, if you understand the narrative that we're laying out. You see, Christians, this is very much similar to our experience. Even though we are redeemed from the power of sin, even though we're released from the captivity of the devil and his angels, so to speak, we still look in front of us and know that things are not right now as they ultimately should be. There still is sin in the world. There still is sin wrestling in me. There still is um, injustice in the world. And so we look at things and say, yes, I am released from the captivity that I'm under, but there's a lot of work in front of us. So there's going to be four observations from Ezra chapter 3 this morning in light of this thought to carry with you as we think about the return back home for the nation of Judah. Four things. First of all, there's three things that marked God's people who existed in this state of rejoicing, yet also knowing there's plenty of work to do. So they've got this duality of rejoicing, but also frustration that they've got to be working on. And so there's three things that sort of come to the surface about these people who live in this condition that we're going to see. But then there's ultimately one motivation that drives them to be the people of God in this place. As we get to that point, I think you'll see what we mean. Let's start with the three observations about God's people. So God's people have returned. They uh, have a renewed sense of energy. They've got a release from their captivity. They're excited, but they've come to a place where, they, uh, where things are not like they're supposed to be. And so there's three things that come to the surface about them in which they are pr- uh, uh, proceeding forward to be the people of God. First of all, look in verse 1. It says, The seventh month came. The children of Israel were in the towns. And it says the people of God gathered as one man. That phrase is really unique in in its original. It's not just um, that they agreed on being back in Jerusalem. It's not just that they all were thinking the same thing, that they uh, intellectually thought, well, maybe we should set up uh, the system to work this way. When it says that they were coming together as one man, it meant that they had one heart. They had one pulse. They had one passion. There was a hope set in front of them that they all collectively shared together. What was coming to the surface was a a singular passion, a singular belief that trumped individual interests. They were one man, meaning they had of one body and one heart, one mind, one soul, one passion. They had what the Bible would call unity. Unity. You see, unity is one of those virtues that we often rob from our lives. Uh, We do this in one of two ways, usually. There's other ways, but, but one of two ways we usually rob unity in our life happens this way. Either we consider unity just to be an added bonus, but not a necessity. Like there are certain principles that we've got to operate under, and if we happen to luck out and actually be unified on this, that's a great thing. 
But so often we consider the idea of unity or the concept of biblical unity as just uh, an extra maybe icing on the cake, but it's not something that's necessary for us. The other way is we cheapen unity. We cheapen it to mean that we just have things in common, shared interests, shared likes. Neither of those are true unity. You see, in fact, unity is necessary to Jesus. He prayed for it. Right before he went to the cross, when he was praying to his father for his disciples that they would uh, be ready to face what they're about to face, he prayed, God, please help them to be one. It wasn't a, back, a secondary thought to Jesus. It wasn't something, maybe an option to Jesus. The idea of his believers having one heart, one mind, one passion, one hope was central to the mission of Christianity. And in our freedom in this nation, freedom to kind of pursue the way that we think things should be done, we have let go of the necessity of unity. You go to a country where um, liberties of religion are not as ample, you'll find brothers and sisters that figure out how to work things together, that get over their differences, that stick it out, that fight for unity. You see, this nation, Judah, when they returned to Jerusalem, did not have people cheering for them. In fact, all of the nations surrounding them became their enemies. They did not want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. They didn't want to see the temple back together. And so they had enemies, which we'll learn about more as we go on in the next few weeks. And in the midst of those enemies, these people knew we've got to have one mind, one heart. We've got to be of one being. You see, this kind of unity, as described in Ephesians chapter 4, is the language of the New Testament regarding God's people. Unity. Ephesians 4 would say that we need to be, be a people of one Lord in submission to one person. One faith, that we have a shared common belief. One hope, that we have a shared mission, we know where we're going. One body, meaning that we belong to each other. So if one suffers, the rest of the body suffers with it. One spirit. You see, unity is always discussed, not as a matter of just mind, but a matter of spirit in the Bible. Our spirit must be unified. And he says, one God and Father, meaning that there is one creator over us all. We're all equal. But there's also one Father, Paul says, meaning we're of one family. We don't just have one God that created us all. We have one Father that's our Heavenly Father, makes us a family. You see, this kind of unity demands of us. That's probably why we don't do it as much as we ought it requires something of us. It requires serious investment. It requires investment of submission, of love, of care, of self-sacrifice. It is with those investments that unity both is established, that's how it's built, when we start making investments into each other's lives, but it's also the way that unity is sustained. You see, as we make mutual investment into each other, it becomes increasingly difficult to pull away from each other. It's very easy to pull away from somebody that you have zero investment in. But if you've made investments into people's lives, if you've cared for people, if you've checked on people, and they begin to respond to you that way, do the same for you, it becomes very difficult to pull away from people that you've invested your life into. When these people took off from Babylon back to Jerusalem, requiring letters from the king so that their lives were not taken. You think they had each other's back? You think they invested into each other? 
You think when they faced sickness or hunger that they helped each other out? Absolutely. Unity was necessity for survival. And we've got to rekindle that belief in a country that doesn't necessarily demand that of us. The second thing I was saying, not only is unity necessary, unity is, can become cheapened. And we can't accept a cheap alternative to unity, which is just sameness. Sameness is not the same as unity. Sameness is not what unified Judah, nor will it actually unify the church. You see, the things that truly unify us are a common Lord, a common faith, a common hope, a common spirit, God and Father, Savior. These things transcend the things that make us most comfortable to be with people, like mutual sports interests, shared hobbies, uh, maybe the same hometown or same background, same kind of political affiliations. Those sort of sameness makes it comfortable for us to be in the presence of people. But that is not what biblical unity is. Biblical unity finds uniqueness and closeness in things that transcend just sameness. And our one faith, our one Lord, our one hope, our one God. And so we can't accept just a cheap alternative. So these people practice unity. That's what was noticed about them as they had this shared hope. The other thing that we noticed about them uh, in verses about 2 through 6 that Harold read for us, they didn't just practice unity. They also prioritized the covenant. You see what the very first thing they did? So the Bible says they left in the springtime. And uh, we see in Ezra chapter 7 that it's about a four-month trip from Babylon to Jerusalem. So their travel time was about four months. And so that puts them in Jerusalem about late summer, early fall. And the very first thing that they do, their first order of business, is that they build an altar and then they keep the festival of the booze. That was the festival in the fall that the Jewish people would keep in honor of those that wandered in the wilderness. God asked them to keep the festival of the booze, which represented them living in like a temporary housing for a long period of time. Then the other major festival was Passover that they would keep in the spring that honored the Exodus. And so the very first thing they do is restore the system that sustained the covenant they had with God. Just imagine for a moment, about 50 or 60 years that some of these people lived, not having the system that reminded them, that gave them security, that they were in covenant with God. They didn't have that. They had lost that. And it was no longer really something that they had the comfort of. You see, one of the things I wondered is, why would this be a priority, right? So they get there. They've got plenty of things that they can do. Rebuilding uh, buildings, their homes, getting their families established, reestablishing uh, you know, alignment of property. They've got a lot of civil things that they need to do. But they were restoring the system that gave them the covenant to God, that reminded them that God had covenanted himself to them. And so this is the primary reason we see the church and the Bible coming together. You know, if you come to the Scripture and you see, why was... Why were people calling themselves Christians coming together? What was the purpose? That's a really important question to ask because as we call ourselves Christians in this room, why do we come together? And when you look through the New Testament, the reason people who called themselves Christians came together was to remind themselves of the covenant and partaking of the Lord's Supper. You see, the communion, the reason they did it every time they came together, every Sunday, was to remind themselves 
of a covenant. Jesus said, this is my blood when he instituted it. This is a new covenant. He said, this is my blood of a new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so when you and I come together, communion is a reminder to us. It's what sustains and keeps alive the understanding that we're in not contractual relationship with God, that we pay him something and he gives us something, but we're in covenant with God, relationship. You see, the cup or the, the, the communion reminds us of what God has done for us to give us the covenant. That's what Jesus meant by his blood. When you take the when you drink the cup, you're reminding yourself of what God did to make a covenant with you, the blood of Jesus. And then when you take the bread, it reminds you of how you participate in the covenant. Jesus said, this is my body that's broken. Take, partake in it. And then later the church would not just be called a church, but the body of Jesus Christ. When you take that bread, you are reminding yourself not just of a broken body of Jesus, but the body that you now belong to, that you participate in, that you are with. Communion calls for us to be discerning both of what Christ has done for us and of our upholding of the covenant. It calls for both of those. And so that's what they were doing. Now third, in verses 7 through 9, um, we didn't read all of this, but look what they did in verse 7. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from, king, from Cyrus, king of Persia. And it goes on to say that they would put together their work. So these people practiced unity, prioritized their covenant, and they participated in God's work. They got their hands busy. The first thing they did in verse 7 is they gave of their means. Now, um, one of the things that you know, we, we uh, gather around the table, we take communion, and every Sunday we have an offering, a free will of your own accord, offering. And that's what we see in Scripture to be revealed to us. And one of the things that we see playing out in Scripture, I would call it the primary motivation of financial giving in, in the Bible, is not just, um, well, God's been really good to me, so I owe Him a little bit. That's really not the primary motivation. The primary motivation of contribution of funds in Scripture is the opportunity for believers to participate in what God is going to do. Did you catch all that? You and I, given the opportunity to give money, is our opportunity to participate in what God is going to do. Are you familiar with the work that is done here? That, that you participate in work that happens here in Pickerington, the amount of missionaries that we support that are domestic and overseas, the amount of benevolence that is done here, the amount of work that gets done, the evangelism that takes place, that you've got to keep fresh in your mind that in contributing to that, you are not just paying back to God a percentage to say, thanks for all you do for me, keep it coming, big guy. But you are giving to God to say, I want to participate in the work that I know that you're going to do on earth, blessing people, saving people, sending people. And when people know they're participating in something bigger than themselves, they give. And that's what they knew. You think these people were having abundance of money and food and clothing and all that when they returned to Jerusalem? I'm sure their economy was just wrecked. They had nothing going on. And the neighbors didn't want to trade with them, so they had no economy really going. 
So they probably, you know, went pretty thin on some food at times and maybe wore some clothes a little bit longer. They were contributing to a cause that was bigger than them. They were participating in God's work. They didn't just give of their means. They gave of their abilities. In verses 8 and 9, we see that each person comes together and they contribute to the building of the temple about, based upon what they're able to do. We see that uh, there's great unity in this, that both priests and princes participate, both civil and religious leaders. We see supervisors, men that are telling people what to do, and we see builders, people with their hands actually on the bricks. And they were all considered to be part of the whole. How did they know which job to do? You ever wonder that? We've got a bunch of people that are leaving Babylon that probably haven't developed a skill for the last 30 or 40 years. How do they know what to do? Who's going to be in charge, right? That's always kind of the big question. One of the things it says in verse 8 is this. Look down in verse 8 in the middle. It says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, made the beginning together with the rest of the kinsmen, meaning they got started. They got after it. All the people came out from their homes. They got together and they said, hey, we've got to do something that's bigger than us. We'll give to it, but we're here to work. And they started to do the work. How did they know? You got groups together. They had a purpose and they just got going. People emerged in different roles. They got their hands dirty in the work. They get together. They got a purpose and they got started. I want to encourage you to think seriously about that, that that Christianity, that God doesn't call us to be like lone rangers in our work for him and participating. He's going to accomplish work in this world and he wants you to participate because in the work you're transformed into the image of the sun. But sometimes we've got to come out from our homes, come together, get together, understand purpose beyond just doing something for the sake of doing it and get our hands dirty, start working. And we'll see our gifts begin to emerge about what we can do. But here's the primary question. We'll be done. How do they do this, right? How? How do you get a group of people, both with great excitement but a lot of work to do, how do you get those people motivated to have incredible unity, to prioritize their religious covenant with God, and to be all in and participating for his work. How does it happen? You see, one thing that isn't said in Ezra chapter 3 is that there wasn't a priest or a Levite that commanded this to take place. There wasn't a prince or a leader, a civil leader of the group that came out and said, hey, listen, I know all of you just returned and you got a lot of work to do in your own homes, but I'm commanding all of us to have one mind to come together and to work. And also, you've got to give 10% of your income, so let's go. There's not one command. How did they do this? What motivated them? Well, in verses 10 through 13, you see their motivation show up. You see what happens in verse 10. It says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and Levites and their sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Here's what happened. All the people upon building, they laid the foundation, they stopped. They weren't done with the temple. They laid the foundation, the beams, and they all stopped. And they began to worship. Worship always reveals your deepest motivation. You see, the question is not, do you or do you not worship? The question is, 
who do you worship? Every person in here worships. The question is who? And in this moment, they stopped. They saw the foundation. They were pleased. They had the priests and the Levites bring in, and they began to worship. And they called out this very famous, probably, uh, hymn from memory that they had not sung for a long time when they said that God is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. The presentation of this foundation caused them to worship. Isn't that strange? That just a foundation would cause them to worship. Not the whole building, the foundation. It confirmed in them that God was faithful and steadfast, that He loved them, and that He is good. And you see, not just a few of them worship, but in fact, in verse uh, after the, the hymn there, it says, all the people shouted with great shout and praised the Lord. Everybody worshipped. The entire community, priests, Levites, builders, everybody worshipped. But how can a foundation of a building cause people to worship? You see, they, these people knew what that foundation represented. They knew that on this foundation, just this foundation, this foundation alone, they knew that the house of God will be built, that the presence of God will be with them once it's built, and that they could have restoration in the rest of their lives once that building was built. And it would be built. But we've got a little bit of trouble because guess what? That foundation isn't there anymore. About 500 years from this point, AD 70, that foundation would be destroyed again. So what are you going to do? We don't have a foundation to stand over and say, hey, this is what we need to build on. We should celebrate. We should praise. We should rejoice. Oh, but before AD 70, God was doing something for us. Before that foundation that caused them to worship and be together was destroyed, God was laying a foundation about 40 years before. Not with wood, but with a man on wood, Jesus Christ. He was hanging on a tree, becoming the foundation for our life. You see, Jesus Christ, it is described in 1 Corinthians 3, that Paul said, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And just a few verses later, he says, you are, you all, the people, are the temple of God that are built on that foundation. Jesus Christ is the only true and living foundation this world has ever known. Every foundation that people have built on except for Jesus Christ has or will fail or crumble. He is the only one that you and I can build our life on. We are all building our lives on something. Every one of us has a foundation. That's what the parable of the wise man built his house on the rock. That whole parable means every person builds. Some people build on sand and some people build on the rock. That's what he's getting at. You see, we're all placing our hope that our commitments will give us what we ultimately long for. That's what a foundation is. I'm placing all of my eggs in this basket that is going to give me what I deeply long for. And when you boil it down, you almost always find that humanity is looking for usually one of two things, usually both of these. One of them is love and acceptance, and the other is value and worth. And that's why in our culture, the two most common foundations that are not Jesus Christ are either our career, where we get value and worth, or the love solution, where we get love and acceptance. That's why the idea of love, you listen to our love songs today, we are expecting a wife or a husband to deliver us in redemption like Jesus Christ only can. They can't. I've only been married 11 years now, and Lisa will tell you, she can confirm this fact, that a spouse cannot save you. Just can't. The love story that is sold to us 
is not our redemption. Jesus Christ is. He is the only foundation that can bear the weight of every expectation you have of life. He's the one that can bear the weight of your needs, bear the weight of your desires, bear the weight of your hopes. Nothing else can bear up underneath that weight except Jesus Christ. Because nothing else can tell you that you have value and worth like Jesus. And nothing else can make sure you know you're loved and accepted like Jesus. Nothing else can do it. No one else can do this for you. He can because he's a foundation. Like I said, not made with wood, but hung on wood and took from us what is wrong to give us what we needed. There's two really interesting responses to this foundation. There's a younger group of people. Um, they see the foundation, they worship, and it says that they had great joy and excitement. They were singing and they were praising. They saw the foundation. You see, this group had never seen the temple before. This is the first foundation they've ever seen, and they were excited about the possibilities, the potential of what lied ahead of them. But there was another group. This was the older group, it says in verses 12 and 13. They saw the foundation, and they praised too. But it says they wept bitterly. They were crying. The foundation that caused worship brought about both joy and weeping because that older group had known the sin that caused the destruction of the first temple. And when you and I look at the foundation of Jesus Christ and begin to see Him as the true foundation, the only thing that you can build your life on, it's going to elicit both joy of what is ahead of us and weeping is what brought us to this point. And when you see Him as that, when you begin to both weep and rejoice, you'll start to worship and Jesus will be the one that you need to build your life on. You can come as we stand and sing.